0: Hello and welcome to On the Nature of Things, a history podcast about people, literature and nature, hosted by me, Mary Hitchman.
1: And me, Chloe Fairbanks. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from about 700 to 1700.
0: That's an awful lot of history to cover, so we'd better get started.
1: Today, we're delving into the subject of the Apocalypse, looking at how people sought clues for its arrival in their natural surroundings. This is a letter from Pope Gregory the Great to King Ethelbert
2: of
0: Kent, written in 601, but recorded by the Northumbrian monk Bede in his ecclesiastical history around 731.
2: We wish your Highness to know what we have discerned from Holy Scripture, the words of God the Almighty. The end of this present world is near, and the kingdom of saints, which no one will ever be able to end, is about to come. Whilst this world approaches its end, many unprecedented things will happen. That is to say, changes in the air, and terrors from heaven. Storms that contradict seasonal patterns, wars, famines, plagues, and earthquakes throughout the land. Not all of these things will happen in our days, but they will all ensue after our days. Therefore, if you learn of any such occurrences in your own land, by no means be troubled of spirit. These signs of the end of the world are sent ahead so that we might give our souls the care they are due and be mindful of our own mortality so that when our judge arrives, we may not be found wanting.
1: So we've heard the word apocalypse. But what does it mean? Apocalypse comes from a Greek term meaning revelation or disclosure. This is also true of the literary form apocalyptic literature, such as the book of Revelation in the Bible, which reveals divine secrets to its readers. The four horsemen of the apocalypse might ring a bell here. They're traditionally called war, famine, pestilence, and death, although the Bible only names death. Chloe, given that we live in a predominantly secular society, how does our understanding of the apocalypse differ from that of medieval and early modern people? So nowadays, most of us understand apocalypse to mean the end of the world, and we often use it as a synonym for utter destruction. But in Christian thought, the apocalypse is the second coming of Christ. So when medieval and early modern people referred to the apocalypse, this is closer to what they meant. In the early medieval period, plagues, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes, and strange weather were often interpreted as signs that trouble was coming. 793
0: marked the Viking raid on the monastery at Lindisfarne, an event which is often interpreted as the start of the Viking Age, a period of intense raiding by Viking invaders, (coughs) Um, but also trading, settling and farming before my fellow medievalists shout at me. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a history of the medieval English people, recorded the events of the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, but also the signs and portents that came before it. And I quote, Here were dreadful forewarnings come over the land of Northumbria, and woefully terrified the people. These were amazing sheets of lightning and whirlwinds, and fiery dragons were seen
1: flying in the sky. So people were primed to look to the natural world for answers and clues about what was coming. In fact, after their arrival, some people saw the Vikings themselves as a sign of the end of days. People clearly took certain natural signs as bad omens. But does this mean that they were stressed all the time? Or was a long, balmy summer enough to make them forget about the second coming of Christ? Luckily,
0: we had Abby Bleach from the University of Manchester on hand to answer our pressing questions. Abby works on how environmental change and crisis were negotiated in Old English Literature, and she was the perfect person to grill on this topic.
3: Hello, thank you so much for having me on to talk about the apocalypse.
0: It's such a pleasure. Um, How prevalent was apocalyptic thought in England in the 10th and 11th centuries, and um, what was the church's position on the matter?
3: Yeah, those are really good questions to get started. But I think maybe even before I answer those, I have to recognize or acknowledge the fact that this wasn't a chicken licking situation where everyone in early medieval Christendom was running around in a constant state of panic that the sky was about to fall down. Really what we're talking about when we talk about early medieval apocalypticism is a more subtle, but also more deep rooted belief in the idea that time was drawing to an end. Um, And this was a mainstream Christian view, um, you know, kind of um, rooted in the idea that time began with the creation and would end with the day of judgment. Um, Time, according to the Christian worldview, is a finite resource. Um, And this became a particularly pressing concern around about the year 1000, because based on maths you can do with numbers from the books of Genesis and Revelation, it looks like time might end at the turn of the first millennium. Um, So it really did become very prevalent in early medieval England around about the 10th and early 11th centuries. Um, But this is also where the church's position on the matter becomes a little bit more complicated, in large part due to St. Augustine, who essentially said, look, we need to stop calculating when the end of time is going to happen. And he advanced an interpretation of the Bible that essentially said, look, When the Bible says time's going to end in a thousand years or in 6,000 years or however long it might be, um, it's talking allegorically. It doesn't mean in literally 1,000 years. It just means after a stretch of time, the end will come about. And this led to quite an odd situation in the early medieval church where preachers were at once bound to encourage their congregants to prepare for the day of judgment and repent. Um, but also they had to keep saying to them no 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 we, we don't know when it's going to happen it might not be yet it might not be for 100 years but you really should start repenting.
0: That definitely calls to mind the example of the PhD student in her third year knowing <laughs> that the end is <laughs> nigh um, but you know it's not it's not quite yet so you don't have to immediately panic. I also love the, um, the mention of Augustine. I'm doing late antique stuff so obviously I love Augustine but the fact that his thought was still very much um, or prevalent in these discussions I find that really really interesting.
3: Of all of the kind of church fathers Augustine is definitely the one who um, has the most influence I think in, in early medieval England um, and in the theology and philosophy of the time. But also, I mean, people didn't just follow what Augustine said to the letter, um, even though he said, look, stop predicting when the end of time is gonna be, um, people still did it because it's, you know, rather like the end of the PhD and, you know, the, the looming deadline. I know it's not productive to think about it, but it's still quite difficult to get that thought out of my mind especially
0: when it's um, described in such kind of florid terms as in the book of Revelation. I am talking about the actual apocalypse, not the PhD thesis. But you know,
3: <laughs> I also just I really enjoy this kind of um, comparison we've got going on about the kind of very low level apocalypse that we're all experiencing at the moment, because um, I think maybe there's a tendency, certainly in um, in some modern literature I've read to, to kind of paint early medieval people as being stuck in this state of sort of permanent hysteria, um, and they they weren't. This was just something they were trying to deal with in the course of their everyday lives on really quite a mundane level. Um, so it wasn't a you know a headless chickens or whatever. Um, they were just like, oh crap, I've got the end of the world to think about on top of everything else.
0: I wanted to ask you about how people interpreted. Um, signs from nature as indicating the end of the world in some way. And also how did people manage to record these signs?
3: So a really good source for these kinds of signs is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, And this was a a series of of annals that were kept um, throughout the the early medieval period, which recorded year on year, notable goings on, including when there were signs in the natural world of, um, of coming turmoil. And generally speaking, the signs of the apocalypse that we see fall into two categories. Um, There are portents and natural disasters. Um, And portents are maybe more supernatural than natural a lot of the time. We're talking here about things like comets or um, the sort of phenomena that make the, the sky go dark at unexpected times. So, I mean, I'm thinking here of the idea that the sky darkened at the moment of the crucifixion. That's a one of those kind of signs from heaven that something is amiss. Um, and maybe the most famous example of this, which is recorded in the Chronicle, is the fact that Halley's Comet, um, it's not called Halley's Comet in the Chronicle, made an appearance in the sky above England at the time of the Norman Conquest in 1066. And that was interpreted by the English as a sign of impending doom. It was also interpreted by William the Conqueror as a sign of his ascendancy. So, I mean, you do what you can with the comets you're given. And then the other kind of sign that you get in the natural world are actual tangible natural disasters which are perceived as kind of signs that the world is getting old and unhealthy and these are things like famine, plague, pestilence basically stuff that could actually happen um, but which was interpreted as having this kind of eschatological undertone to it.
0: The world needs a good SBF. A retinol and some vitamin C <laughs> really <laughs> does to crack down on signs of aging. <laughs> I love the idea of well, it's kind of dark, but you know, people looking looking at nature and going, "Oh, that funny looking star is definitely a sign of the end of the world." I mean, if we if we cross the channel, we've got Gregory of Tours. He's got this wonderful passage in which he talks about all of the strange goings on in the natural world which indicate that something really bad is going to happen and his big one is uh, the fact that roses started flowering in January and then he kind of skims over the fact that he's like oh yeah you know um, rivers started to flow with blood but no it's the roses that flowered in January that was like the big mishap.
3: Yeah I love that I actually came across in the chronicle there are there are lots of mentions of crop failures um, but then there's this one entry which just I read it and I thought you just sound pissed off about that it was like and the harvest was two weeks early um and you sort of think is that apocalyptic okay cool you you clearly want to think that this is a sign of the apocalypse so I'm just gonna just gonna let you do it and there's also um I don't know if you you find this in in Gregory at all but I can't help being slightly skeptical when I read of some of these signs of the apocalypse you know obviously we know that Halley's Comet did pass over when it, you know it became visible in the year 1066, but I mean, there are an awful lot of earthquakes recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in the 11th century. Just, I think I counted five or six earthquakes in the span of 50 years. Maybe tectonic plates have shifted so much that England was an earthquake zone in the 11th century, but I somehow doubt it.
0: Yeah, I wonder what people, I don't know, do you think people were interpreting different things as earthquakes or do you think that people thought oh you know well we need to we need to put something in this chronicle which um sounds kind of apocalyptic shall we just say that there was an earthquake yeah all right
3: i think yeah the the second reason definitely comes into play bear in mind that the chronicle also records dragons appearing in the sky in the year 793 so we might want to take it all with a pinch of salt. Sorry,
1: are you saying that dragons are not historical fact? Because if you are, I'm heartbroken now.
3: <laughs> Look, according to Beowulf, um, they're definitely historical facts. And that's the only history I care to read. But I mean, one of the Old English words for earthquake was um, which literally means like a um, a din of the earth. And so maybe that was, you know, something that was perceived as an earthquake but was just kind of another loud noise caused by something else and then it became an earthquake. That's really interesting
0: so you know if a if a wagon falls in the village and a few people are around to hear it then it's an earth din.
3: (laughs) Maybe yeah. Well that is what I was
1: thinking when you were talking about it because like I don't know when when it's bin day all the trucks go by and you're just you know sitting there trying to have your morning coffee and it's like... (laughs) You know, I wouldn't say it's the world ending, but if you haven't
3: sufficiently caffeinated yet, you know, you might be like, what the hell is that? I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that the soundscape of the apocalypse will be bin day.
1: Very good.
0: (laughs) And um, segueing from bin day to other slightly more mundane kind of signs of the apocalypse what other signs of the apocalypse were in the landscape
3: so funnily enough with your comments about the earth needing a good skincare routine you've anticipated this because yeah it wasn't all comets and plagues an aspect of apocalypticism that often gets overlooked is the fact that the world wasn't just viewed as as kind of ending you know the apocalypse didn't come out of nowhere but rather the earth was growing old um, and, uh, you know, in in several homilies of the time, uh, the earth is described as ageing or senescent. There's this idea that there's this kind of irreversible decay going on. And in early medieval England, the advanced age of the world was made visible in landmarks like the Roman ruins um, that people would have encountered in the landscape. Because to the 10th century inhabitants of England, these relics spoke to the rise and fall of great civilizations, and to the sense that all earthly things were transient or fleeting. Um, And this is a key word when we're thinking about the end of the world in the context of early medieval England is um, len, which literally means loaned, um, but can be translated as transient. This idea that God has given the earth to humans for a limited period of time and then it will be taken away. There's a great line from the Old English poem, which is known as The Ruin, and it describes how um, Bros nath enter ye work, um, the work of giants is rotting or decaying. And I think that gives a real sense of, you know, these these ancient civilizations that are so much greater than, than we are, and they're all gone.
0: I think having the idea of like the aging earth or the fact that the earth is very ancient at the forefront of our minds now would be a really... Good thing if we, you know, went about our daily business with slightly more respect and care and reverence, kind of keeping that idea that the earth was fleeting, maybe without, you know, the apocalyptic dread. I mean, we can keep the poetry though. The poetry sounds pretty cool.
3: Yeah, I think (laughs) old English apocalyptic poetry tends to be a bit more beautiful than the Anthropocene stuff. But I mean, I suppose I would say
0: (laughs) you do have a somewhat of a vested interest i would say
3: another kind of sign in the landscape as well as ruins is burial mounds and so burial mounds are a feature that looms large in the imaginations of early medieval people and and really any kind of grave and this is because as we've already noted the end of time comes with the day of judgment and this is the day when all the humans who've ever lived will arise and be judged by God. And early medieval Christians understood that literally. Um, you know, they thought that people's bodies would rise up from the grave um, to be judged. And that was a cause of some anxiety. People were very worried that, you know, what if the day of judgment happens after I've been decomposing for 80 years? And I don't want to go to heaven if, you know, I'm I'm kind of all all gross, to use the technical term. And so many preachers at the time had to kind of reassure their congregants that like, no, it's okay, your body will be restored to its living state. But I mean, bearing this in mind, you can imagine that the experience of encountering a burial mound in the landscape, that would be a kind of unavoidable reminder of the fact that judgments coming and it carries on into early
1: modern as well it's in some dumb sermons and some other things in the sort of later early modern period where people are getting quite worried about the idea that their earthly remains might be commingling with you know a poor person's earthly remains or a yeah. foreigner's earthly remains And so they're really concerned about if our bodies are commingling in the soil, you know, how's that going to work when the resurrection happens? Like, am I going to have some body dust from the butcher down the road mixed in with my like Glover's dust?
0: That's so interesting. People getting anxious that they're not going to rise in quite the way that they would like is just it's so there's something so human about that.
3: Yeah, people in the early medieval period were less worried about their kind of unseemly neighbours and more about worms. Everyone was very anxious that their body was going to be digested by worms. And then what do you do? Um, Because obviously worms aren't coming back um, on the Day of Judgment. What? They don't have souls, Mary, I'm sorry. Well, no one think of the worms. Like, you're going up for the Day of Judgment and you're like, oh, crap, I'm missing an ear because
1: a worm ate it and the worm isn't coming back. Ugh.
3: You joke, but people were genuinely worried about that.
1: This, I think, moves track a bit from where we were, but I do think is something that we'd like to make sure gets talked about. So I was wondering if you could just say a bit about what the seasons of the apocalypse are.
3: Um, yeah, sure. I mean, this so this actually kind of carries on quite nicely from what we were saying um, you know about how the end of the world might be perceived in the landscape Um, and I suppose the point I want to make there is that it wasn't as though every time someone went out for a walk and saw a burial mound they'd think oh shit the world's going to end. Um, It was kind of more unevenly perceived than that and I guess maybe a, a good analogy to return to the age thing is you know every time you see an elderly relative for instance it would be weird if you were struck by oh my god they're old you know usually you just see the person and i think it's the same with place in that like you know you just go about your daily business in the landscape and then every now and again you know perhaps because there's there's a particular kind of weather going on or because you've just heard a sermon on a particular theme you look at the landscape and you can see that it is old and dying um and the seasons of the apocalypse, this is kind of a, a phrase that I'm I'm just throwing out there. But I think what I mean by that is that at different points in the year, the end of the world and the fact that the world was old and dying would have been perceived more clearly, particularly, um, I mean, in winter. There's a reason that many of the elegiac poems written in Old English are set in this horrible bleak wintry landscape the the speaker of the wanderer for instance is subject to this seemingly endless barrage of rain and frost and hail as he laments on the end of the world and i mean anyone who's spent a winter in the united kingdom can testify to the fact that that's not too far from reality and so what we can kind of realize by taking into account seasonal weather patterns is that in winter The abstract theological concept of earthly transience is kind of made manifest in the landscape, you know, in leafless trees and barren fields and creeping darkness. And so the end of the world just seems that bit closer um, in winter when sort of teleological time and cyclical seasonal time are temporarily aligned. That was fantastic. Thank you. That was a really clear and nicely concise explanation. And uh, and so Gregory the Great actually writes that the reason that the earth becomes so hostile towards humankind at the end of the world is for the purpose of lessening our love and attachment to it. In other words, well, it's that much easier to come to terms with the end of the world if the world itself appears barren and lifeless. And this all makes sense. And this is how we, you know, it makes sense that the seafarer and the wanderer are inhabiting these lifeless, wintry landscapes. But it does also raise the question of what do you do during spring when the world around you shows every sign of flourishing? Because obviously, if you're an early medieval preacher, you're going to want your congregants to be preparing for the day of judgment and to be kind of, you know, praying and thinking on the faith and repenting. You're going to want them to be doing that year round and not just during winter. And this is when my boy, Alfrich of Ainsham, makes an entrance. Tell us about your boy, Alfred of (laughs) Ainsham Abbey. Well, quite apart from being the love of my life, um, he was a Benedictine monk and later an abbot of Ainsham in Oxfordshire. He lived from around about 9.55 to 10.10. Uh, and he was a prolific writer. He wrote homilies, um, hagiographies, biblical commentaries, and also kind of general educational materials. He's kind of like the Cicero of early medieval England, just everything we have was written by Alfred. And he was also a bit of a warrior. and specifically he was very concerned that the end was drawing near and people were severely lacking in the kind of theological education that would prepare them For the day of judgment. And so he took it upon himself, firstly, to correct certain widespread misunderstandings about the Day of Judgment. I love this one. There was this kind of widespread idea circulating at the time that you didn't need to repent before the Day of Judgment because the Virgin Mary would step in and intercede on your behalf. And Alfrich had to say, no, that's not true. That's apocryphal. You need to repent before the Day of Judgment. No one's going to save you if you forget to do it. So that was one of his jobs. But he also wrote two series of homilies in which he tried to educate people really on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And he, in these homilies, he helped them to get to grips with things like um, the nature of the Trinity or the, the kind of life of Jesus. And in his regation Tide and Ascension homilies, what he really tries to do is help them to get to grips with the apocalypse and how to deal with the end of the world.
1: I love this. So jumping off of the rogation tide that you've just mentioned, and the springtime reference you made earlier, could you talk a bit more about that issue of what is, you know, the liturgy in springtime? How do we conceptualize the apocalypse when, as you said, the earth is showing every sign of renewal? And I guess, specifically, what did it mean in this period? And how were they understanding the world ending, sort of in conjunction
3: with the world visibly renewing. Yeah, so this is this is kind of the the crux of the issue that Alfred is trying to deal with. You know, you've got the world thriving around you, and you've also got the end of the world around the corner. And he uses his springtime liturgy to essentially try to communicate this incongruity to his congregants um, and to help them past it. And I mean, just some some background that the feast and it incorporated a ritual. This is the kind of liturgical aspect, that aspect of worship, which is about kind of public and communal performance. Part of its liturgy was a ritual of walking around the boundaries of the land. And so, yeah, you've got this clear focus on the land happening during Regation Tide, but the homilies also tend to be very apocalyptic. So here you've got this collision of two apparently incongruous sets of ideas, you know, on the one hand, pray for the ongoing fruitfulness of the land, on the other, prepare for everything to burn and die. And some of the homilists who are writing regation tide homilies really do put it in terms that are as crude as that. Um, and I imagine that their congregants didn't find them very helpful. But Alfrich is great, and he really tries to walk his congregants through this really tricky theological issue of how you perceive that which is imperceptible. And the way that he does this is he crafts his homilies around the motif of the sun, which is just a really clever thing to do because I mean, you know, think about it. The sun is the source of all earthly life. It's it, and they were, you know, obviously photosynthesis wasn't really a term that early medieval people were familiar with, but they were aware that the sun was kind of, you know, it gave light and heat They were aware of its role in the cultivation of earthly life. But it was also, according to Revelation, one of the instruments of the apocalypse. The sun would burn up the people below it. So the sun's this really powerful eschatological symbol and Alfrich uses it to kind of communicate to his congregants that, you know, the things that we perceive around us as fruitful, there's this kind of dark underside there. And this, I guess this comes back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, you wouldn't kind of scream with fear every time you saw a grave mound in the landscape. But what Alfrich does is he essentially remaps his congregants' immediate earthly environments so that yeah maybe nine times out of ten you do just walk outside and notice that it's a sunny day and don't think anything more of it but then there'll be that other time that tenth time where you think oh god the the sun's there and one day it will burn us all so what he's essentially trying to do is like (laughs) yeah mary looks like a little bit shell-shocked i'm so sorry i'm very pale i'm very sensitive to talk of sunburn (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would not last long um, in the 10th century apocalypse, I don't think. But yeah, it's it's this whole thing of how do you integrate something so vast and unthinkable into everyday environments? And, And that's what Alfred is doing. I don't know if this is completely
1: unrelated, but it is making me think of the birth and death are twins idea that we get in early modern sermons, where the earth is a womb, the earth is also a tomb, and the sort of the idea that, you know, your dead body... When it becomes food for the worms that you mentioned, on the one hand, you're dead; your life has ended. But on the other hand, you're the food for the worms, and it's fertilizing the ground, and that's growing the food that's going to feed the next generation. That seems to be something that becomes increasingly woven into understanding that ability to hold the idea of something as a symbol of both life and death simultaneously.
3: Yeah, and that's really interesting, and it's something I know that you work in the sort of field of eco criticism too, Chloe. And it's it's something that I'm constantly running up against is that early medieval people, really? I mean, I joked about photosynthesis earlier, but they really didn't have any sense that, you know, the decay of one substance was giving meaningful life to another. You know, even the even whole worm food thing wasn't understood in a kind of like regenerative way, you know, in the sense that compost is, is a really lively matter. It was more, look, this speaks to this kind of unidirectional Rotting that's going on in the world. So, yeah, it must be really cool to work on literature that's slightly later where people do seem to have that slight awareness of all death, but also life. And some people get really suspicious
1: about compost heaps. I can't remember who wrote it, but there were these like minor gentry members who would write tracts about, no, actually, like, I know there's a famine and it's terrible, but I promise you root vegetables are not actually foreign instruments of Satan. I know it looks unclean because you're growing it in cow shit, but actually turnips are great and will help you survive the famine this winter. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a becoming increasingly sort of a, oh death and life. But at the same time, people are like, oh, that doesn't seem nice.
3: <laughs> Just seems off to me.
1: Yeah, They're like, I think they're starting to accept it more, but there's still very much an undercurrent of extreme suspicion, particularly of root vegetables. Was it
0: Parmentier who tried to get people to eat potatoes? I feel like, so in, I think this was in France, uh, people were struggling with, famine and crop failure and all sorts and what he did was so people at this point wouldn't eat potatoes because they were thought to you know be i think it's something to do with the devil satan potatoes and also they would make you ill so what he did was he he planted the potatoes and then he stationed guards around them very very kind of like ostentatious guards and then at the end of the night the guards went home and all of the um the peasants who had been watching the guards guard these these wonderful weird crops were like oh I, I want I want to have some of this odd posh food that he's been keeping so so heavily guarded, so they went and dug them up, ate their potatoes, and everyone was fine.
3: That's so sneaky.
0: Yeah, don't quote me on that.
1: Uh, no, that seems like very important information for, for the pod viewers. I just have. like
3: how that's essentially how my mum got me and my brother to eat vegetables when we were little. Just like, make the vegetable look desirable. Um, and then, lo, we're, we're fighting over it.
1: <laughs> I think that pretty much comes to the end of my questions. That hits
3: on everything I wanted to ask. Yeah, can't. As well. I mean, we've covered worms, root vegetables, and Alfred. So.
0: the holy trinity. <laughs>
3: So I think we're done.
0: Fast forwarding from the 11th century to the 14th, I want to give you a rundown of some of the truly awful events that happened. I mean, dreadful. You can see why people may have thought that the world was about to end.
1: Okay, is it a timeline? Because historians love timelines. Chloe,
0: of course it's a timeline. Here we go. (sighs) (laughs) So... From 1315 to 1322, the Great Famine raged throughout Britain and Northern Europe, which was a result of poor weather and bad harvests. From 1348 to 49, there was Black Death in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. In 1361 to 62, there was a second outbreak of plague in England. The third outbreak came in 1369. In 1370, there was famine in England. From 1374 to 79, there was a fourth outbreak of plague in England. From 1390 to 93, there was a fifth outbreak of plague in England. And guess what happened in 1400? Obviously, there was a sixth outbreak of plague.
1: Remember what I said earlier about the four horsemen of the apocalypse war, famine, pestilence, and death? The 14th century was clearly excelling itself. <laughs>
0: Well, um, the timeline I gave you was very plague heavy, and um, I hope it doesn't reflect on our own situation in the long term. But other awful stuff was happening too. There are lots of descriptions of famine in primary source materials at the time. And while some of these may be a tad hyperbolic, they really give a sense of people's desperation. For example, at the peak of the Great Famine in 1317, Irish annals recorded that people dug up dead bodies from graveyards and women ate their children. There was apparently some children eating going on in England too. What did they eat in Scotland? Horses, according to John (laughs) of Fordham's Chronicle of the Scottish Nation.
1: It's a busy time. And don't forget the misleadingly named Hundred Years' War, which raged from 1337 to 1453, And in the middle of that, we had the 1381 Peasants' Revolt in England and an earthquake the year after. Both were taken as signs that the world was ending. The preacher Thomas Wimbledon certainly thought so. In 1388, he gave a sermon at St Paul's Cross in London stating that the world would end in 1400.
0: Chloe, you're an early modernist. Mm. I have a question. In this period, did all negative omens mean the apocalypse? Could you get an omen that meant personal strife, like not getting a job that you interviewed for?
1: The short answer is yes. Omens could just mean a bad thing was about to happen. As we've seen with the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, the astral portents had indicated something terrible, but not necessarily world-destroying. In the early modern period, there were actually lots of different omens for death, and these could vary depending on region. You know, like accents, but gloomier. (laughs) So are they similar to the omens that we've already seen? Some of them are actually weirdly cute. In early modern Northamptonshire, if a bee comes into the house, it means someone's going to die soon. Save the bees, or else. <laughs> um, what are the others? So a group of three butterflies in the north of England, or hearing the call of a screech owl in the southeast, could also foretell death. But equally ominous for all of Britain was apparently a magpie tapping on your window. Especially if a magpie kept talking about Heathcliff. <laughs> To round things off today, we have a poem by Lady Elizabeth Tirrett, written in the mid to late 16th century. A collection of her poetry was published in 1574, and Elizabeth I even owned a copy.
4: Sweet Jesus, of thy mercy, Our pitiful prayers here. That we may be on thy right hand when thou shalt appear, for thou shalt come with heavenly power and sit on the throne. None shall judge the quick and dead, but thou Christ alone. O Christ, cast us not away in that day of ire, when thou shalt set before thee a hot consuming fire to purge all creatures, defiled with Adam's sin. Then a new heaven and earth, O Lord, thou wilt begin. Then the elect shall be blessed upon thy holy hill. But the wicked shall be damned, that hath withstood thy will. The sheep shall be safe and defended in the fold. The goat shall wander, in hunger, storm, and cold. Thy saints shall behold thee in thy throne of light. The reprobates shall ever have fearful things in sight, wailing in wretchedness with everlasting pain. Yet, Lord, be merciful, our lives are but vain. Our flesh shall fade, death hath digged our grave. Yet of thy mercy, Lord, thy sinful creature save, and bless us in the time of grace before the day of ire, when the corrupt elements shall be purged with fire.
1: Thank you for joining us today for all your doom and gloom needs. Next week, we'll be getting starry-eyed and talking about how medieval and early modern people understood the
0: cosmos. You can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't
1: fit into the episode and give updates on what's to come next. If you enjoyed listening, please leave a review, tell your friends and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. That's it for now. Bye. Bye! This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. The bead extract was translated from the original Latin by Mary Hitchman. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Ben Connaughton and Elizabeth Perry, for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project.